Hey everyone, it's Caleb. Welcome to the Learner's Corner Podcast. I'm so glad that you've decided to spend a few, a few minutes of your day here with me on the podcast and uh, listening to this. And today I am honored to be joined by Mark Clark, who is uh, a pastor in Canada, and he has written uh, two incredible uh, books over the last five years, which has really uh, shaped my understanding of of God and learning more about uh, theology and God and the kingdom of God and Jesus and and just how that impacts our lives as well. And we're going to talk with him about his most recent book, The, the Problem of Jesus, and we're going to get into some other stuff as well. Uh, but if this happens to be your first time listening to The Learner's Corner, I want to tell you a little bit about the podcast here at The Learner's Corner. We want to create a safe place to have difficult conversations because if you're like me, you know, you're really excited about learning things and you're you, maybe you're learning about all sorts of different subjects and you get excited about it and you want to share it with other people and, you know, you share something that you've learned or something that you've been reading from or someone that you've uh, been following a lot and you don't get the response that you thought because you thought they were going to be just as excited as they were about it. And it turns out that they're not excited about it. In fact, they're questioning, why are you learning from this person? Or maybe it's even a, a harsher response than that. In fact, they're angry that you're learning from that person. They're angry that you're asking about those those questions. And maybe, maybe there's some shame that is attached to that as well. And I know that there was definitely times in my life to where I didn't feel like I there I didn't feel like I really had a whole lot of people that I could talk with about certain things without feeling like I might be judged for learning about those things as well. And hopefully here on the podcast even if you don't have someone that you feel like you can have those conversations with, maybe you can listen in to some of these conversations because I know that's part of my story as well. And there's several podcasts that did that for me as well. And that's really what we want to do here in the Learner's Corner is create a safe place to hear those types of conversations. Now, kind of another one of our uh, mantras or sayings on the podcast, or at least I guess that I say, I don't know why the plural uh, I'm not sure for why the plural, but for me, one of the sayings uh, of the podcast is, you know, hey, this is a podcast for lifelong learners. We want to learn from anyone and everyone from anything and everything. And so uh, today, like I mentioned, we're talking with Mark Clark and the, man, his book just covers a wide gamut of stuff. But before that, you know, we brought back this, or uh, there I go with the plural again. Uh, I brought back this uh, segment that we did for a long time in the Learner's Corner and then it kind of went away is a recommended resource of the week. And one of the things that I talk with uh, Mark about is the importance of stories and how Jesus constantly used stories to communicate different truths. And so I kind of wanted to tell you uh, one of the things that I've been learning from, which is more of a story form, because if it, uh, I like to, the best that I can, attach the recommended resource of the week to the subjects that we're talking about. And so today, uh, I want to tell you about a book that I've been reading, and it is called The Sword in the Shield. And the subtitle is The Revolutionary Lives of Malcolm X and Martin Luther King Junior, and I've been going through it, and I think the biggest thing, and I, I feel like I I started to learn uh, this at least a little bit a couple of years ago, but just realizing how we paint, uh, and this isn't just true for uh, Dr. King or for Malcolm X, but we tend to paint these uh, these uh, people, especially people of history, into these boxes of, hey, they're this way and they're this way and they don't fall out of those boxes. And the truth is, whenever you read about history, it's much more nuanced than that. It's much more uh, complex 
than that. And I think that's one of the biggest things that I'm learning about while reading this book is how by the end of their lives, they 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 grew closer to one another's side than uh, than they started out initially, and that they started to see that there's merit and there's value in each other's approaches, which reading through the book, it's like, it does not start out that way very much. And so that's one of the things that I've been learning about just as I've been trying to learn more uh, about history. And that's one of the stories that has really stood out to me from, uh, from one of the things that I've been learning from recently. So that is the recommended resource of the week. Now, uh, let me tell you a little bit about Mark Clark before we dive in. Mark is the founding pastor of Village Church, a multi-site church with locations in multiple cities across Canada and online around the world that seeks to reach skeptics and challenge Christians. He is the author of The Problem of Jesus, which has recently come out and we're going to talk a lot about, which is, I mean, both of these books are incredible, and The Problem of God, which is the winner of the 2018 Word uh, Award for Evangelism. Mark has been the subject of several articles on Christianity Today and Outreach Magazine voted him one of the top 26 leaders to watch. He resides in Vancouver, Canada with his wife, Erin, and their three daughters, and his passions are connecting the message of Jesus to our culture, inspiring and training leaders, apologetics, marriage counseling, and working to see our world influenced by the gospel. So without any wait here, or without any further wait, here is my conversation with Mark Clark. Well, Mark, so excited to have you on the podcast today. Thank you for having me, sir. Appreciate it. Yeah. And just as we get started, one of the things that I really wanted to ask you about is the way that you lay out both the problem of Jesus, which has recently come out, and the problem of God is laid out in such a compelling way that it's really hard to argue against like anything in there. <laughs> and I just wanted to ask, what was your process like for for writing out those books and forming them in such a way that li- it's really difficult to make an argument against it? Yeah, well, thank you. I appreciate that. Um, I, you know, just probably years of thinking through these issues and questions. I I came to faith as a skeptic, so just thinking tr- logically through the the issues that I struggle with, and so as I write, I tend to be arguing as kind of against myself. And then when I'm arguing, I'm creating counter arguments in my brain. And so then I want to answer those. And so it's kind of like a dialogue with myself in the way that I think and the way that my friends and family around me, none of whom were Christians, you know, for most of my life. And even today, a high percentage of my, you know, my social world isn't Christian. So what would they say if I said this? What would they say if I said that? What answers do they need around this issue or that issue? And I think that's probably how it ended up being laid out the way it is. So, mm-hmm. what are what are some of the things that? Uh, and maybe it just comes naturally to you. I don't know, but what are some of the things that you do to still communicate respect to the people that you just don't believe that? Hey, I actually don't believe your view is true. I believe my view is true. But how do you create that respect so that you could continue the conversation and the dialogue in a respectful way? Yeah, I mean, it's a good question. I think part of it is is first showing them that you actually 
at least know, understand their argument, whether you agree with it or not. Creating straw men is probably not always the best idea in this kind of setting where you're, you, you, you create a version of their, their idea. That's like the worst version of it. It's like, you know, it's like if you're on a stage and everyone's like, well, I'm I won't be a Christian because you killed witches. And it's like, well, okay, well, that's like the worst version of Christianity. So why, why don't you argue with a good version of it? Like the hospitals and education (laughs) and poor and around the world. And, you know, but anyway, so, so you don't want to misrepresent their view on something when you're going to argue against it. Um, so showing them that you understand it, that you've read or thought or talked, you know, to people who actually think these things. And, uh, and then, you know, you, you dialogue in regard to the ideas rather than, you know, what, what, what I think one of our temptations in our culture is, is to, if you can just discredit someone then you don't have to disprove them. Mm. And uh, I don't think that's always the best thing to do because yes, someone's life might be a disaster, but their ideas might be true. And so pointing out that, uh, you know, Hey, you're a, you, you have a reputation for stealing a lot or something. So I'm not going to believe your math equations, you know? And it's like, well, those are kind of two different, those are category mistakes. Let's not judge someone's ideas if they're true based on their, you know, bad representation of them potentially. So at least giving them the hearing that, you know, before I try to discredit you, I actually want to try to disprove, disprove you. Mm-hmm. You, you know, you talked about how uh, people who aren't followers of Jesus can sometimes, you know, create straw men for, you know, the arguments against Christianity. I'd sure. love to hear like the opposite thing. What do you, what straw men do you see Christians create or tend to create against people who don't follow Jesus? Um, well, that they're kind of all um, antagonistic toward Christianity. Like they proactively go out of their way to hate Christians or persecute Christians. You know, you, you see a lot of Christians, like even if you take like all these COVID measures, you know, people are like, well, they're trying to persecute the church. And it's like, well, or they're trying to make decisions for tens of millions, hundreds of millions of people at one time. And it's difficult. You know, and it's kind of like this, where do you start? Do you start with this hermeneutic of suspicion that like everyone's against you and they hate you and they want to put you in jail or you like, well, okay, maybe they just don't like my ideas or whatever. And so they don't hate you, but they haven't probably thought about you much. Uh, or they're, ap- they're so cr- oftentimes people are more apathetic than they are proactively anti-Christian, you know? And so, you know, thinking through, okay, they probably don't wake up in the morning, twisting their mustache, trying to figure out how to destroy Christianity from every corner of the world, you know? So we just have to be careful not to kind of position ourselves as martyrs all the time. Mm-hmm. You know, like, like I find it funny. I remember years ago, John Stewart, I don't know if you remember John Stewart, the mm-hmm. daily show, you know, I remember him, you know, it was Christmas time and he pulled up, you know, the classic kind of, you know, conservative critique of liberal culture, which is like, they're trying to destroy Christmas or whatever. Right. And he's like, I live in New York city as a Jew. I walk by this 1000 foot Christmas. Have you been in New York City during Christmas? The one thing that's not happening is it's been canceled, you know, and it's just kind of like this 
oh, right. Christians kind of get a little bit of like a, you know, a complex. So mm-hmm. what are, what is the, some of the things that you've learned about communicating or even just dialoguing with people who maybe are more apathetic and it's not the antagonistic? Yeah, I think, I, I think sometimes uh, at that point, having a conversation about what they value, um, having a conversation about kind of their, their heart and their pinings and their yearnings and their passions and their goals in their own joy and fulfillment in life becomes part of the conversation um, because no one's apathetic toward, toward that, mm-hmm. to that endeavor, right? I want to be happy. No one's apathetic toward that endeavor versus I might be apathetic to your version of Jesus being God or your ecclesiology or your whatever, your answer to the question of whatever, but no one's apathetic toward like, oh, I actually want to be fulfilled in life, you know? Mm -hmm. You have this chapter in your book and it's called Rethinking God. And so one of the things that I really wanted to ask you about is, What's something that you've rethought about God recently? Um, oh man, that is a big question. Um, something that I've rethought about God. Hmm. I have been thinking about, well, actually, okay. So you take the, um, the, the conversations that I have found and the different sh- you know, what podcasts or radio shows or TV things or whatever that I've noticed um, over the last year or so, the conversations have become about some of the stuff that I kind of had thought about, you know, 10 years ago and, and hadn't, you know, realized how important they were. And now I'm having to come back and constantly talk about them or rethink them. And they, they're regarding race, um, nationalism, you know, these kind of questions that you can't get away from in the context of, of the Christian conversation. And, and so just that continuous rethinking, I, I've pointed out, for example, on a, on a couple uh, podcasts, um, <clears throat> um, because they asked me, you know, they're in, they're, they're in the U S and they're like, well, show us kind of what, what's wrong with us or whatever. I'm like, well, I'm not going to do that as a Canadian, but you know, one example I I've given is, um, I read a book a, a long time ago, uh, about the guy in one of the pilots in world war two who dropped one of the atomic bombs on Nagasaki or Hiroshima. And, uh, and he years later realized that that he had just killed more Japanese cat. He was a Catholic guy, more Japanese Catholics in this monasteries and convents that they're in than anything else. And he realized I did it in the name of my nation. I did it in the name of a nation state war, but isn't my kind of brotherhood with fellow Christians actually more important than my nationalist identity? You know, and and, and there's there's this tension of like, you probably have more in common with a Christian who lives in North Korea or Iran than you do with non-Christians that live in the United States, you know? And it's like this version of our identity, our citizenship, our our national interests and how those things can trump other things 
you know, um, power dynamics, all these things that I think, you know, I'm constantly rethinking and saying in light of what the next generation of Christians are rethinking in light of the, what the next generation, they're deconverting, they're deconstructing all of those important conversations. Uh, you know, how can that be actually a helpful corrective to what's true and clear about the, the gospel identity that we're supposed to have? So mm-hmm. I I want to follow up and ask you, and I know that you just you said that you've just really started rethinking this stuff in the last year. So some of the stuff may not be implemented, but if you have started implementing or even addressing that stuff, what what did that process look like for you, and what what does that look like for you right now? Well, I think I started exploring some of that stuff when I I was a New Testament doing my my bachelor's, uh, and then and then went on to a master's in New Testament. I started trying to read the New Testament. Um, you know, you come at the Bible at certain times in your life with, with a particular filter, you know, when you're new to faith, you're coming at it with this filter. And when you're, you've been in it, you come at it, you know, whatever. And I was asking a series of questions about Christ and culture, about what is the, what is the role that the, the, the here, the now and not yet the, the, in the world, but not of it kinds of tensions. And, and when I read the new Testament through that filter, that's where a lot of this stuff started to get stirred up. I started seeing the sermons of Paul in the book of Acts, depending on which city he was in and, and declaring these kind of, you know, whatever I was seeing that they were constantly calling out, you know, Newbegin, Leslie Newbegin says, you know, we don't live, we don't live in an atheistic culture. Um, We live in a, in a, in a, in a pagan culture, meaning you know, when we're thinking about the dynamics of the gospel, it's not the gospel bumping up against nothing. Mm-hmm. It's the gospel bumping up against idols that people have in their life and things that they worship and value and prioritize. And that, you know, how, what is the church's relationship in that tension versus just up against a, a blank slate cardboard of, oh, let me give you facts. And so I think, you know, just thinking through the reading the new Testament through that filter kind of started to raise some of those, those questions of, you know, what, what is my role in regard to nation, you know, nation building, you know, is my, is my role to create a Christian culture is my role not to. And why does when Christianity kind of gets, get into those seats of power uh, historically, it tends to move around geographically. You know, it used to be popular in North America. Now it's moved to Latin America, Asia, and Africa. And, and that's partly because it, it flourishes in, in the margins versus places of power. And so is it, what does it look like for us to try to legislate it? And is that good? Is that bad? Is it creating shalom in the world? Or is it creating a dynamic of people who think they're Christian, but they're really not, you know, all, all of those tensions. And so I think reading the New Testament through those filters is, uh, is kind of what brought me to, to some of those. Mm-hmm. Is there anyone that you, anyone else that you've read that has, you know, maybe, maybe thought about that stuff? a lot more as well that you're learning <laughs> well, from. I hope so. <laughs> yeah, I hope so. Yeah, a lot, a lot of people have thought yeah. about it a lot more than me. I got, you know, I got a church to run and a yeah. family to to raise. So I hope there's guys, people out there, uh, men oh. and women who are writing, uh, Nancy Piercy, uh, she's a great thinker and she's, she's, uh, she's written a bunch about this. Um, 
Stanley Hauervoss, um, uh, Brian Walsh, uh, Walter Brueggemann, this kind of spirit of like, what are the prophets? How do, how do they speak into this? Uh, John Howard Yoder. Um, yeah. So, so just the, the, these people who write about these tensions, actually a really good book. It's not so much about this as it is just about the general tension. You know, obviously you have like Niebuhr's stuff, you have Bonhoeffer stuff, but a modern guy, John Stackhouse wrote a book called Making the Best of It, which goes through Niebuhr and Bonhoeffer and Lewis, and then starts to talk about some of the dynamics of how we exist in these tensions. And I found that really good. Mm-hmm. Uh Whenever it comes to, you know, remaining open to the mis like just the mystery of God, what are some things that help you be open to that, to even rethinking things about God? Uh, well, I never, you know, you, you want to embrace the mystery. The gap's not always closed uh, in mm-hmm. regard to you know, even the biblical witness, but and so, but, but you always want to be careful that it's not the cultural moment that you're in that's causing you to rethink foundational fundamental things about God. So you, uh, you know, you don't just want to be reading the prompter of whatever culture you're in, whatever the Twitter feeds yapping on about this week, and then change your whole theology away from Orthodox historic Christianity without making sure it's a biblical. So, so one of my premise is going to be, it's gotta be, it's gotta be biblical you know, first. And so mm-hmm. I remember when I made the shift, even from, uh, you know, being someone who, who didn't necessarily believe that women were supposed to be pastors in a church, you know, there was obviously a lot of cultural conversation, but I, I, I kind of first had to go, okay, I get all that. I just want to, I want to get into the text. And so I did a sermon a couple of years ago, just explaining to our church, like, this is the shift we're going to make. And here's the biblical, here's the biblical exegetical reason how I came and how we've come to this conclusion, and then talked about some of the cultural implications, but but wanting to show that I'm going to believe something because the Bible leads me there, not because I just come up with it or have some bad pizza and then I just start going, okay, now it's this, you know. That's yeah. the tension of rethinking. Yeah. What are there any other things that really help you manage that tension? Um, so, so Bible first, mm-hmm. um, uh, a community around me, people trusted people that I know aren't ideologically dogmatically, like have an agenda, just open to the mystery and the, and the yeah. journey a bit. Um, and, uh, just, yeah, the spirit that, you know, speak to speak, Holy spirit, you know, what, what, what is Jesus saying to the churches kind of thing? And, um, I, I, you know, it's, it's interesting because the canon is closed, of course, you know, of scripture, but, you know, it's not like the Holy spirit is like closed and yeah. done talking and guiding and leading, you know? Um, and so of course, from like a, ultimate authority sense of like, you know, we're not going to become Mormons or something and believe that like, Oh, look, the the Holy spirit told me something new, you know, Jesus didn't do any of that stuff. You know, that that's, that's not it. And, but there's this, you know, it's what, what is that Wesleyan quadrilateral or whatever, where it talks about the four ways that we, 
we learn stuff like epistemologically is like reason, tradition, scripture, and experience, those four things. And sometimes we, we like emphasize scripture and then, and just go experience doesn't matter anymore, you know? And it's like, well, yeah, it's probably still does matter in regard to us learning and, and, and journeying with God or else, you know, what's going on. So uh, we, we constantly need to be thinking about Christianity, in the context of the cultures that are progressively unfolding in the world. Like, like uh, Newbegin again points out that when he was in India for 30 years as a missionary, you can't just put a billboard up saying, um, believe in Jesus and you'll be born again. Because everybody in India is a Hindu and they think being everybody's born again constantly. It's reincarnation. So how do you, how do you make sure the gospels contextualized to what's going on in the particular culture that you're in? And so that's going to be something that we constantly need to be thinking about. Mm-hmm. And so you've written the book, The Problem of Jesus. And I always love asking anytime that I have, you know, an author or creator of a work, I love hearing the story behind what made you want to write The Problem of Jesus, whether it was, you know, an event, series of events or whatever. Uh, wanting to get, you know, I'm seeing people walk away from Christianity or never have been interested in it for all these reasons that I'm like, okay, those are cool, but like they don't really have much to do with Jesus and actually who he was and what he was about. And then I see Christians who aren't really like, they don't have a real clear picture of him. They can't defend you know, the gospels and the life of Jesus and what he was actually talking about. Like if you just go up to a regular person on the street and say, okay, Jesus, even a Christian, what was he all about? What was kind of this, what was on his lips the most? What was he talking about? And everyone's got all these ideas and it's like, yeah, but when you actually read the the gospels, that's not what he's talking about. Those are all implications of what he's talking about, you know? And so he was about the kingdom of God. And that was constantly on his lips, hundreds and hundreds of times. Every parent, you know, people say, you know, Jesus talked about money more than he talked about salvation. You know, people come up with these funny phrases when they're in like a stewardship series or something. And it's like, no, he didn't. Even his money parables were about the kingdom. They're not making money points. I mean, some of them might be, but they're not actually yeah. about like the 12 ways to control your money. They're parables about the kingdom. And he's using examples about the reign and the rule of God is coming on the world. And are you going to organize your heart and mind around it? Repent and believe the good news, you know, all of that. And I wanted people to see, like, try to clear away the stuff and look at Jesus, the historical person and work. Can you trust that he existed? Can you trust the gospels that tell his story? And then what are the implications for your life as a modern person, skeptic or believer around this person. And so it was born out of a heart to try to present that as clearly and compellingly as interestingly as possible. So then I use psychology and philosophy and movies and music and all kinds of stuff and shove it all and go, boom, here's the, here's the best (laughs) I got on Jesus. Hopefully it can be a one-stop shop for everybody. So, Mm -hmm. you know, you mentioned how uh, sometimes we, we can get confused about Hey, Jesus was all about the kingdom of God, and that was the thing that was foremost. Is there anything else that you just see right now to where you go, hey, 
this this part or this thing doesn't get talked about a lot whenever it comes to Jesus or it gets overlooked whenever it comes to Jesus? Yeah, I'd say um, probably what, probably almost every chapter I wrote <laughs> in the book was trying to uh, re-centralize a few mm-hmm. things that are being forgotten. So um, the miracles, you know, what, what, what were they? What, what were they doing? You know, so first from that skeptical vantage point, I talk about how they can actually ha- have happened and it is actually plausible that they did yeah. philosophically and scientifically. Um, and then I talk about what they actually meant because, you know, Jesus, if all he did was do a few raisings from the deads and a couple of healings of some lepers, like he didn't do much to actually fix the world. Uh, and so unless those things meant something else, beyond themselves, you know? Um, And so let's talk about that. So I was trying to, you know, um, the parables, the stories of Jesus, what were they doing? What was the point of them? What was he saying? Uh, The, the, the idea that Jesus is God or that he's the only way Um, the, the, um, the love, the concept of discipleship, the concept of loving God, Uh, the, the concept that you could be a Christian and, uh, you know, basically just do everything like your neighbor, but you just have different theology than them. And it's like, no, that's not the version of Christianity that Jesus laid out. The concept of the, the loving God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And why, like, how many Christian books have I read and rarely have they talked about? By the way, the central thing Jesus calls us all to do is love God. And then let's ask the question, why he did that? Is it because God's a narcissist and he just wants everyone to, you know, dote on him? No, it's for actually our own good because it's the way we're wired. And the only way to get off that addiction and get off that terrible way of life and get off the looking to beauty and sex and money and power for your fulfillment is to love God. And that's the only way you're going to flourish and get true fulfillment in life. And so um, I think all of those things are somewhat neglected in some of the modern conversation about Christianity because we're just on about whatever the latest Christian scandal is, which is, I mean, it's, I didn't grow up in the church. So it's, it's constantly frustrating to watch Mm -hmm. Christians get so embedded in these little things, sometimes little, sometimes big, but sometimes very little. And they just go crazy on it until the next one comes along. And it's like, man, the world's out there, like not caring about, (laughs) you know, our little subculture and we think it's the most important thing in the world because we've got nothing better to do. Yeah. What surprised you the most and just your re- your research for this book or your writing the book about Jesus, what surprised you the most? Um, I think, I think what surprised me when I started looking at Jesus from a historical cultural lens was that some of the stuff he talked about and did isn't what we think it is. <laughs> so like, you know, I think I give the example in the book about, you know, when he's talking about, um, you know, riding on a cloud, you know, and we, we go, Pook, you know, all this end time stuff. And we read it literally as if he's going to be riding like a like a like a space travel down from the and have have a sword in his teeth and he can't talk and all. It's like this was a particular way that people 
read a particular genre of literature, apocalyptic, that that had all these images. It has this backdrop of Daniel 7 and everything that meant for Israel. And, and he chooses 12 disciples to represent the 12 tribes of Israel and goes through the waters of the Red Sea in baptism and goes out of the wilderness for 40 days, representing the 40 years. Like he's he's doing all these things to symbolically do this thing. And we just read it and, you know, well, 40 days must've been tough, you know, whatever. And we're just not cluing in to like, he's trying to do something here. Mm-hmm. You mentioned earlier, and you spend like a good section of the book talking about Jesus as the storyteller. What are some of the things that you've learned from Jesus about being a better storyteller? Um, yeah, it's funny within Christianity. I mean, we do these, we do these, uh, doctrinal realities where we 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 just kind of teach and preach ideas and prose and and we and and we follow a guy who 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 preached theology and stories and uh, I talk about why that is you know why the hey there's seeds on the ground and there's two brothers and there's this and there's that and you know um uh and and the power of story to to compel not just the reason but the heart which is ultimately what we're after to persuade people to Christianity or to any idea, you've got to get their heart or it won't stick. And so story is the way that we answer these questions and give meaning and purpose and value and structure to our, to our lives. Um, And we miss that when all we do is get up and just download ideas on people instead of, framing those ideas in the most powerful thing we've been telling. And I, I, I talk about this in the book, right? That Christopher Booker uh, book. Yeah. Uh, yeah. The seven basic plots, you know, um, and how we're constantly, since we've been drawn on walls, we've been just telling stories. Like think about what you do when you get together with friends, you don't, you don't just, you don't download information. All you do is everyone just goes from one story to the next. That's it. Yeah. And then you might do some commentary on why you're telling it and what it means. But ultimately you're sitting around a dinner table. All you're doing is telling stories. That's it. You know? uh, And so this law, you know, this law, but Jesus is like this, he's bringing, he's not only explaining the kingdom and so he's bringing it in by the way he's telling these stories. And so uh, I think there's a lost art there in the church to be able to go, we have to reframe, you know, I think it was Brueggemann that said, you know, you're not a real citizen of the empire that you live in until the, your imagination is taken captive by that empire. And Jesus is constantly trying to capture our imagination so that we're actually free and liberated, even in the midst of the empires that we live in right now. That's good. Oh, another thing that you you write about briefly in the book is you talk about uh, one of the books that you read called The Experience Economy. And you talk about how in there, you know, they mention at the end of the book that we're moving maybe more towards the, tr- the transformation economy. I would just love your thoughts on, on just that. And then also, what are some of the adjustments that you're making and even at the, the Village Church to like to better to better to minister and tell the people about the gospel with that? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so yeah, so we used to trade stuff 
And now we not only want to trade stuff, we want to, you know, I think, I think I say, you know, Dunkin' Donuts or whatever, you go in, you, you buy a coffee and they give you a donut and you walk out. That's the exchange, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, but when you go to a Starbucks or whatever, it's like, oh man, I'm saving the environment. I'm sitting <laughs> beside the couch here in my puffy chair. I must be talking, you know, I'm going to write the next great Faulkner novel, you know, whatever we really, they're trying to give you an experience, you know, to yeah. get into your bones and uh, that's the the economy that we live in. And then, of course, now we're we're moving into this. Not only do I want to have an experience, I want to be transformed by this experience. I want to become better. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, affected us. I tell that story in the in the book about us, you know, founding this church now eleven years ago. And the mission statement is seeing people transformed into fully devoted followers of Jesus because. I don't want to just, you know, I know of churches and leaders who think the goal and role of their life is to just teach the Bible. And it's like, okay, unto what though? Like, I get it. Like, I get you want to teach the Bible, but do you want to see that Bible transform people? Because it's really easy to just get up and read a commentary, you know, just print it out, hit print and get up and read it, you know, and that's it. You taught the Bible. Um, which is great, but it's like unto the, the 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 transformation of people by the transformation of their desires and their affections. You know, that's you know, you want people to not only think clearly, you want them to to actually love and be in awe and and be compelled inwardly toward a thing. And so, um, yeah. So so I think transformation is is the goal. Of Christianity, and of course, the rest of the New Testament. That's what it's. That's why so many sermons in Christianity tend to be about uh, what you do in your behavior. And it's because we we read the New Testament. It's so much of it's like, well, if this is all true, now let me tell you how it's working out practically in your life. And you get all these lists of like, this is what it means to be godly, and this is how to do your behavior, and this is you know whatever. So, I think that transformation is legitimate. We just we just have to make sure we don't lead with it. We got to constantly preach it as implication and trajectory, not means of salvation. Yeah. One other thing that I wanted to ask you about is, are there, are there any like things that you've intentionally added to just the way that you preach to help better communicate the the transformation economy or that you have people in your church, you know, whether it be leading classes or leading anything else to help communicate that idea of transformation. I think, um, yeah, we, we have, we actually have gone through in the last year, a, a process where we have said to ourselves, if our job is to make disciples as a church, we should probably like start to jot down what we mean by that. <laughs> like, what is a disciple? What, 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 uh, what, you know, so we basically created this eight, it's a circle of eight sections mm-hmm. um, where we, we say there's lots of things we could try to disciple people into, but these are the eight things that we're going to disciple people into in their life. And hopefully it's a a holistic approach. So it's, you know, biblical, you know, that they be biblical in their thinking, that they would be godly, 
you know, so the kind of stuff we're talking about here, transformation stuff, that they would be good stewards, that they would be able to defend their faith, that they would be missional, that they'd be communal, you know, all of it, that they would be defined by love, you know. And then everything we do then becomes filtered through how do we get people there in different in different measures and different points of life, which means, okay, now there's this class or this ministry or this program or this whatever. Mm-hmm. I got one final thing that I want to ask you, but before that, any final thoughts on what really stands out to you about the problem of Jesus or anything that you want to communicate about that? No, I, I just want people to be able to, whether they're skeptics or you know, believers that they would be able to, you know, interact with the real Jesus. And and that's the heart of the book and to be Mm -hmm. maybe come at something from a different angle than they thought of before to, to increase their affections for him and realize that he has their best in mind, both, you know, in the 80 years that they've got on this planet and the 80 billion after that, you know, he's constantly trying to get you to live for the eternal and uh, when you get to see him clearly in that way, it changes everything. Mm-hmm. Okay. Last question is, what's something yeah. in the last year or two that you've learned that if you could have the microphone or the magic button and everybody could learn this thing, what would it be? Oh, man. <laughs> um, probably something around the perspective of what I just talked about, um, about the 80 billion and working backwards from an eternal perspective when it comes to your pain and your pleasure, you know, um, you are going to experience suffering and difficulty in life. And how does an eternal perspective on making sure you have an eternal life which isn't just a, you know, a length, but a quality of life that Jesus offers. How does it, how does it impact the present way that you suffer and go through the tensions and pain of your life that you will face? You know, as a pastor, I see it, whether it's people who've lost kids or their health or, you know, whatever it is, uh, how does, how does Jesus in the eternal life he offers actually reframe your pain and your suffering and bring purpose and meaning to it? And also your pleasure, both how does it keep you from going down a road where you get destroyed by the seeking of pleasure, you know, living in the moment, living in what feels good, living in just self-actualization. Because as you know, things that feel good can destroy you, right? You can be married for 10 years and your marriage is on the rocks, but that girl in the fourth aisle of the grocery store, she looks hot and she's giving you the, the smoky eyes. All of a sudden, how you feel could derail your life. So you, you, we have to be careful uh, where our pleasures lead us, but also to make sure we aim them properly. As Lewis talked about, you know, God has this holiday at sea of pleasure and joy and delight that he's offering. And we're, we're farting around making mud pies, thinking that, you know, ambition and sex and power is the ultimate pleasure. But he says our, our, our thing, we're not, our our yearnings aren't powerful enough. They stop too soon. Um, And so I would say, make sure that you're that, that thing inside of you that you're constantly seeking, that it's actually focused on Jesus and what he brings, the connection to God and the social implications of that in your life, vertical, horizontal, um, 
or else you will derail your life in continuous things that never actually fulfill you. Well, Mark, I know that people are going to pick up the book, The Problem of Jesus and The Problem of God. You also have that yeah. as well, too, and yeah. continue to follow you. Where's the best place for people to go to do those things? Yeah, uh, go to Amazon. It's this little website uh, that got created a couple of years ago. I don't know if you guys have heard of it. Uh, yeah, Amazon.com. Um, the book's there. I would love you to leave leave a review, too. That's super helpful in uh, in getting the word out. And uh, and then follow me on Instagram. Yeah, Mark... Uh, Mark underscore Clark, I think. <laughs> yeah, that, that's where to where to get the info. Awesome. Well, thanks so much for being on the podcast today. Thank you for having me, sir. Appreciate it. I think coming out of that conversation, my biggest takeaway from reading through Mark's book and even just through our conversation is, man, just so much of the importance of story and how could we do a better job of incorporating that into our lives. And whenever we're communicating ideas, how can we use stories to further uh, drive home the truth? Because stories are able to communicate truth that simple words and statements and phrases aren't able to. And so, uh, yeah, I think I think that's probably the biggest thing for me. And I mentioned uh, one of uh, the stories that I've been learning from earlier you know, in the sword and in the shield. But one of the things that uh, that I absolutely love that I've started picking up recently is, or recently, I mean, within the last year or so, is uh, is comics. And reading through those, and uh, specifically Marvel comics, and though a little bit of DC here and there, and a little bit of Image comics as well, but reading through those and just seeing the things that they're able to communicate in ways that uh, that get people thinking in a way that you normally want, and I know that it's that has happened for me. I think one of the the best ones that I'm currently reading through is the X Men comics, and just all of the different subjects, all of the different things that they're able to tackle through that um, through those set of stories that that might not might not have been as easy to communicate. Whether with if with it just being a simple written word, and so I think that's the biggest thing, or one of the things that I took away from Mark's conversation. I would love to hear some of the things that you learned from Mark as well. Whether you you are currently going through the problem of Jesus, would love to hear that, or just some of the things that stood out in our conversation as well. If you have something that you are really learning about and you're excited about, I would love to hear from you as well. Probably the best way to reach out to me is via Instagram at Caleb J Mason. Would love to hear from you some of the things you're learning from, maybe even some of the subjects and people that you would love to learn from as well, and maybe we can. Uh, make that happen on the podcast or so. So thanks so much for listening to today's episode of the Learner's Corner podcast. I want to say thank you also to Mark Clark for joining me on the podcast. Thanks to Garrett Oler, who does the editing for this podcast. Thank you to Sam Massey, who does uh, who has created the music for this podcast as well. And uh, the best way to make sure that you don't miss any of these episodes, hit subscribe, hit uh, follow, and uh, leave a rating and write a review. That would help a ton. It would mean a lot as well. So thanks so much for listening to today's episode of the Learners Quarter Podcast. My name is Caleb Mason. And until next time, keep learning and keep growing.